Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you need some help with your happiness or achieving your goals, BetterHelp is here for you. It can offer a crucial assist. These are licensed professional counselors Get connected in under 24 hours. Talk in a safe online environment. Change counselors for free if necessary. This is a convenient, confidential, professional, affordable service. Whether you're dealing with depression, stress, anxiety, relationship issues, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, whatever it is, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. And best of all, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash other PPL. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash other P-P-L. All right? Okay. I'll take it, sir. I'm not sure exactly where I'll take it, but I know that I'll take it. When I take it, I want you to know I understand where my feet are placed. Okay, everybody. How you doing out there? Welcome to the Other People program. My name is Brad Listy, and it is good to be with you. I hope you're doing okay out there. I'm in Los Angeles, and my guest today is Misha Marin. Her debut novel is called Sugar Run. It is available from Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. I had a great time talking with Misha, meeting her. She's a very exciting young writer, award-winning, and Sugar Run is an excellent novel. So you're going to hear from Misha Marin in conversation in just a moment. I do want to take a second here at the top of the show to remind you about the Where I Listen thing that we're doing right now. Uh, if you're not aware of this, listeners have started to send in photos of where they listen to the program at my request. I'm always fascinated by this. Like, where are people who are listening to this show? I know that tens of thousands of people are listening to this show, and I'm wondering, like, well, where are they? What, what, what does it look like where you are? So if you want to, you can uh, DM my social media director, Joey Grantham, on Twitter or on Instagram. And you just send a photo of where you're listening to the show or where you usually listen or just where you are. Obviously, include the place name. You can write a little thing if you want and talk about where you listen or where you are or why you listen. Just, I don't know, reach out. Let us hear from you. So you can DM on Twitter. The handle for the show is at OtherPPL. You can also find the show on Instagram at other or, or the handle is OtherPPL.podcast. You can also email me, uh, you know, a photo, and the email address is letters at other PPL 
com. There are several of these photos up, so you can kind of check it out and see what it looks like. But I, I don't know. It's a cool thing to do, maybe especially during COVID and uh, quarantine and all the rest. So my guest today is Misha Marin. Her debut novel, Sugar Run, is out there now from Algonquin. And I'm very pleased to share this conversation with you now. Here she is, folks. This is Misha Marin. I've been in West Virginia um, since spring break. So I went up to um, to West Virginia. Um, as you might know, I grew up there. And there, we still have a family farm there. Um, and I went up there over spring break. And then things developed with COVID, you know, really rapidly. And there was no more regular semester of teaching. Uh, so I had been up there since then um, and have just come back to Durham, North Carolina uh, to begin the new semester that we're teaching remotely, but um, but I have a lot more accessibility. We don't have internet access or really even phone access up there uh, very much. So On your family farm. Yeah, it's a really spotty phone reception and, and there's no, so far there hasn't been any accessible um, broadband internet at all. Because Not because of COVID, but just in general. Just in general. I mean, actually, in fact, things might improve up there as far as the internet connection stuff goes because of COVID. Uh, supposedly, the governor is working to try to put money into uh, broadband for, uh, you know, elementary, middle and high school students because like my closest neighbors up there, uh, their two daughters are going to be doing school remotely. But right now they'd have to drive like to the McDonald's parking lot or the Walmart parking lot to get uh, connected to the Internet. Damn. So you grew up you grew up on a farm in West Virginia. I did. Yeah. And I mean, to to totally clarify farm we know we were surrounded by like folks who um and we still still are when i'm there folks who raise cattle um are on one side they're raising cattle on another side they're raising um goats and pigs and chickens our farm was just like food like garden um for our family and we had a random assortment of you know chickens one horse one sheep um, so we weren't, my parents weren't making a living off of the farm. Um, but, but yes, on but, the farm. but you could eat from the farm. Yes, we could, we could eat from the farm. Um, and it was a, a very rural, uh, childhood. Were your parents like back to the landers or what, what are they, yes. they farm people or what's the deal? Um, well, kind of a little bit of both. So um, uh, definitely back to the Landers. Um, but my mom is uh, from a multi-generational farm family in Iowa. So she uh, was the second oldest of nine siblings. Um, and on that side of my family, they've been, um, they've, they farmed corn, soybeans, um, and, and milk cows for generations. Um, so she came from Iowa and she moved to West Virginia. Um, before she met my dad, she was dating someone who was from Alderson, West Virginia, which is the town that I'm from. And she'd moved there and uh, that relationship didn't work out, but she ended up really loving West Virginia and staying. And then uh, met my dad who had come 
he's from New Jersey and he'd come um, down to Alderson because there's um, a fairly well-known women's prison in, in Alderson. It's where Martha Stort uh, was in prison when, when she spent her time there. Um, it's also where like a few of the Manson followers ended up. Um, and my dad had come down there to work with a nonprofit that, that works with the family members of women in prison. Um, and then met my mom and then, um, yeah, they, it was very much like, you know, a back to the land kind of, um, family that, that I grew up, uh, with, um, my dad was, you know, super distrustful of the government. So he would, he would keep our money, uh, buried in jars in the yard and, um, yeah, that, that, that kind of thing. (laughs) Are there are there still jars buried out there? You think somewhere? Like you know, there there could be. I I I told this story to uh, my neighbors because when I was very little, we lived on the piece of land that's just right next to the the piece of land that that I grew up on. And so I was telling my 15 year old neighbor this summer, and she was like, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna dig around by the the shed," you know. Uh, so there could be. Damn. You could have a trust fund you don't even know about. It could be sitting there. I know, I know. I don't. <laughs> depending, I guess, on how well he sealed those jars, I don't know if money from the late seventies would uh, still be there. But is your dad? Were your parents hippies? Yes, they were definitely. Uh, yeah. So it's you know what it's making me think because I feel like I and I've been talking about this ad nauseum. Uh, on this show during COVID increasingly, like I'm having these fantasies of going back to the land. Um, yeah. Which is a concern of your book. So it, it meshes nicely mm-hmm. with, uh, with my concerns, but the idea of being on a remote farm in West Virginia without internet access, I feel like that is a, uh, what's the word? I, I feel like that's like becoming increasingly popular, like, or as a notion, <laughs> Yes, I I think so. I mean, I I think it it was interesting, um, particularly being there this you know this past spring and and summer, um, and just hearing people's reactions. I did feel um, pretty privileged in certain ways to be there because um, things like social distancing are uh, just n- not as big of a deal. There are simply not as many people. Uh, and the way that, um, that I live my life when I'm there, even totally outside of COVID, um, I I could easily pass, uh, days, sometimes as much as a week without interacting with anyone other than my partner. Um, and so it wasn't, uh, social distancing and all these concerns weren't something that I had to think about quite as much. Um, I think that, there's a, another side to it, which is that, you know, as we were just talking about the internet connectivity, it's kind of, it's nice in certain ways to, to be distanced from that, but it's also uh, an expectation that everyone has is that you're accessible and, um, you know, for doing anything, any kind of uh, book promotion or, um, you know, stuff related to, to teaching, I had to go and find a place that I could connect to the internet, which is, you know, it's not that big of a deal, but, but, uh, I think the, the people I interacted with were like, you're so lucky. And I did feel lucky in certain ways, but I think that, um, that's partially like my privilege and that I can, um, easily 
you know, drive and go and, and use the internet somewhere. And I think that it doesn't always necessarily feel like a privilege um, for people who don't have as much of ability to, to move around. And I, you know, could come back down here to, to North Carolina if I really needed to and um, have all of that connection to the outside world. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm saying this as like a hyper, like an overconnected person. You know, I think the, the idea of being able to just be like, sorry, I'm on the farm, you know, just sounds like a, a joy. But then yes. I'm, al I'm also imagining you, as you speak of professional obligations and, you know, all the, the stuff of modern existence, I'm imagining you like retreating to this bucolic, beautiful, you know, West Virginia farm and sort of being off the grid a little bit, but then spending like 11 hours a day in the Walmart parking lot trying to get Wi-Fi. <laughs> Yes, I, I I think luckily I never actually had to spend eleven hours. But yeah, I mean, and and some of the times it 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 worked fine if I just rolled with it. You know, back in in the spring, um, my partner had a book that had come out, and we were still we still had a few um, events that we had um, signed up to do together uh, before uh, before COVID, and those changed to being online events. And we realized that if we went down to the parking lot that was right beside the Nazarene church down the road, we could get really strong cell phone signal and we could hotspot our laptop. So we have a, one of these pickup trucks that has kind of like a double cab thing where it has a, a bench seat in the back. And um, so we would sit in the back of that and do, you know, Zoom book events uh, from there, which then we didn't have to go as far. And, you know, people think that kind of stuff is cute. So. Who's your, well, you might as well plug your partner's book. I mean, if you're going to drop that, you got to give it a, give it a little bit of a plug, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, uh, my partner is, um, Matt Randall Owain, uh, and the book is Neanderbelt and it's, uh, a nonfiction book, a book of essays about, uh, growing up in the working class South in Memphis. Um, yeah. And, and we, we had fun doing a, a bunch of, um, events together because we wrote, I wrote Sugar Run and he wrote Meanderbelt. We wrote them during the same time period and, um, read a bunch of drafts of each other's work. And, uh, so it was kind of fun to bring them out into the world and talk, um, to people about them together. And I'm hearing as you talk about your personal history in West Virginia and your parents, um, are your parents still with us? Like is the farm? Yes. And there are they on the farm? They're not. So they live in North Carolina now. They live um, in Western North Carolina in a little town called Burnsville, which is close to Asheville. Uh, they moved down there um, and found work and and are are liking living down there. So um, the place in West Virginia is now legally belongs to me and my partner. So um, we're the only family members currently living in West Virginia. Wow. That's got to be like, yeah, you're living my dream in some ways just to have a, because I live, you got to realize I live in the middle of Los Angeles, which is right. about as far from bucolic West Virginia, you know, or any kind of country setting as one could possibly be. So, well, you should come out sometime. We have, uh, we have a house with multiple bedrooms, plus a, a um, studio and this little cabin that, that my dad and I built when I was a teenager that I, uh, I often use for writing, but you know, I think a lot about, um, yeah, having having writers um, come and uh, and stay, and I've never actually put that into practice aside from having you know a, a few friends here and there. But but we're open if people need to get away. You know, I've had that same fantasy. Like, here's my fantasy, if you will indulge me. Uh, yes. When this podcast becomes huge and I'm a millionaire, yeah, 
like it would be so cool to buy like a piece of property and build like multiple cabins on it and create like a little writer's retreat. And I would just live up there and people would come up and do like residencies. So I would have a social life <laughs> without, yeah. without having to leave my property. I could do my podcast that, you know, like, this is like the little dreams I sometimes uh, entertain in my head. Well, you, uh, you should go ahead and become a millionaire and then you should, um, live out that dream in West Virginia. Cause we've, uh, Matt and I've had a, a sort of similar, uh, dream. I mean, land is very cheap in West Virginia and it's very beautiful. So we've, we've been like, uh, yeah, we should, yeah, something like that, but yeah, cabins and, you know, people could do some communal meals if you want, but not if you don't want to like, so you could get enough social interaction, but like no more than you want to. Yeah, like at the proper like I've I've never been at one of these places like Yado or whatever, but I like this yeah. I like this idea of having the option. I also like the idea of someone just like bringing me dinner. <laughs> yes, that uh, uh that that's a it's a pretty special thing like to to be able to hang out with people if you want to, but also if you just want to spend the whole time working or or whatever it is <laughs> that you're doing, and someone brings a little basket of food, pretty dreamy. So what town is your farm nearest to in West Virginia? It sounds like it's way out in the middle of nowhere. It is pretty much way out in the middle of nowhere, but it's um, it's only like, you know, a little less than 15 minutes outside of Alderson, West Virginia. Oh, right. The, um, the which prison. is a small. Yeah, it's, it's the only thing that it, it, nobody knows that they've heard of it, but then they might realize that, that oh, yeah, that's where Martha Stewart was. So less than a thousand people. Um and like a little railroad town uh, that, you know, had a had a big heyday um, back at uh, the turn of the century and then kind of has been crumbling ever since. Um, and it's in Greenberg County. I'm from the same county that Scott McClanahan's from. He went he's from the western end of the county and I'm from closer to the eastern end. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So I want to ask you, because, you know, I'm picking up bits and pieces from your life and I'm, I'm also uh, relating them to your book. You know, it seems like you've found interesting and creative ways to sort of fit the puzzle pieces together, not in a one for one way either. It sounds like, but your dad working for this woman's prison obviously figures into your imagination. The farm in rural West Virginia figures in, um, you know, like, can you talk about maybe like, it seems to me like these things must've made a deep impression on you as a child and probably in ways that you didn't even fully realize at the time. 
and then had all these years to sort of percolate in your imagination. And then when you sat down to write Sugar Run, or when you at least conceived of the idea of Sugar Run, it started to return, um, you know, to the front of your mind or reemerge in interesting ways. Can you just talk about the creative process of putting the puzzle together and, and building this novel? Yes, I really like that description of putting the puzzle uh, together. And it's that's pretty accurate. I think that Sugar Run is not autobiographical in any normal sense, but it is um, geographically and maybe thematically very, very much coming out of the place that I grew up in and um, things that I thought about all throughout my childhood. And um, I started seriously writing Sugar Run during a time period when I was really missing West Virginia. And so I think that a lot of that, uh, that feeling of, of wishing that I could go back there um, is the book is very steeped in it. So I was writing it during I, I was living in Iowa City. My partner was in um, grad school getting his MFA there. Uh, the house in West Virginia had been, my parents had been renting it out for a while. Um, and then it was kind of between, uh, no one was renting it at that point, but uh, but I was you know, geographically quite far away from it um, and didn't know if I would ever be able to move back there, um, both because of you know family concerns, but also because I just couldn't imagine that I would be able to find work there. And so I was thinking about West Virginia, but in a way that felt like maybe I would never be able to return. And when I was writing a lot of the sections of Sugar Run, it was sort of a way to indulge myself in my memories and uh, thoughts of the place. So I was I was working as a waitress in Iowa City and I would you know, get done with my shift and um, I was writing in the public library. They had these little study rooms that that you could rent with your library card. And um, so when I would go there, I could just dive into just thinking about what West Virginia looks like, feels like, smells like in the summertime, particularly. It was like dead of winter in, in Iowa. And so... Um, that's sort of where it, it started from. And I wasn't sure if it was going to be a novel. I wasn't sure I could write a novel, uh, but I just kept writing these scenes. And I, I feel pretty sure that probably um, parts of, of Jody and her background um, coming out of prison um, were inspired uh, in some way by the work that my father did, but it wasn't, um, you know, as, as you were saying, one for one, it wasn't like there was someone who I had met who I based Jody off of. It was more like those puzzle pieces of uh, the town I grew up in is in certain ways um, very, maybe I would say flavored by, by the prison. It's a, you know, it's a tiny town and um, it's a, fairly large women's prison and that was always one of the main good jobs that adults that I knew uh, could have and my dad didn't work directly for the prison system he worked for this nonprofit that has um, a guest house so that family members of women in prison can come and stay there and uh, so I spent a lot of time 
there at what's called the hospitality house. And um, I think I had an awareness of the prison system and the way that it affects uh, the people in the system, but also their their family members from a very young age that I, I realized later is a little unusual, but it didn't seem unusual to me at that point because pretty much everybody in Alderson was aware of the the prison and the prison industrial complex in a way that I think maybe um, other people are a, little, are a little more insulated from that knowledge of of it. It's funny. It's like a company town, you know. It's like yeah. It, yeah. Kinda, it's kind of funny as a calling card. Where you're like, yeah, hey, I live near Alderson, West Virginia. It's where Martha Stewart was incarcerated, <laughs> and everyone's like, oh yeah, I, I hear it's great. <laughs> yes, it's very it's very beautiful. I mean, the the prison uh, grounds because I. Uh, as an adult, I, I taught creative writing there for a little while, and that was actually the first time that I'd ever been on the grounds of the, the prison. And it is actually very beautiful. I mean, it sort of looks like a college campus in certain ways. Um, it was built as a kind of model prison, one of the first federal prisons that was exclusively for women, and they built it with this with these high ideals of um reforming, you know, and using the rural setting. And um, basically, I think uh, my understanding is, you know, this idea of, of like teaching women how to be like, you know, good kind of rural wives, probably, and that that would fix like all of their problems that they would take women from cities and bring them out there. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't think it's very, very based in, in reform anymore, really, in that kind of same way, but it's still a very beautiful place and an interesting place in that there is no there's no um barrier like the women there could literally walk away they sort of use the the fact that it's so isolated as the barrier like if you escape there's really nowhere to go but there's actually not like a big prison wall or uh or lots of um fencing they're just like hey good luck in appalachia on your own right yes (laughs) Um, I, I have talked so many times on this show about hiking the Appalachian Trail, but I'm curious, is Alderson near, I'm trying to place it, is it near it's the trail? It's not that far. It's, yeah, it, it, it doesn't run like right through there, but I think that you could get on the trail if you drive. It's probably like definitely less than an hour, maybe more like half of an hour. Um, you could You can find a place where you can join up with the trail. Okay. Well, I have hiked. I have spent time in West Virginia in the hills in the summer, so I know. Okay. Well, then, yeah, you know what it looks like there. I'm sure you were close. I was, yeah, I was just covered in, like, mosquito bites and ticks. Yes. and you know. <laughs> Oh, yeah, lots of ticks, yes. <laughs> but it sounds to me, as you describe your time in Iowa City, working in the public library in the dead of winter, that the, the basic dynamics of the experience are not all that dissimilar from a writer in, living in exile. You know, even though you're in you're in the same country, it's not quite yeah. the, the same level of exile or expatriation, I guess might be the better word. Um, but it's it's the similar dynamic that you get away from a place and you can suddenly see it more clearly as you pine for it or something. Yes, I think absolutely. I think that I, I did feel kind, kind of an exile in a way I for yeah m- many reasons I you know, I left West Virginia very voluntarily, but in the time that I was away, my family had moved at first temporarily to North Carolina and then sort of more permanently Then the house, you know, was being rented out to strangers. Um, I also 
came out as a queer woman and was had you know all kinds of feelings about how comfortable would it be to go back there um, as as an openly queer woman. So there were all these ways, even though I made the choice to leave, that um, that it did feel like like exile in some ways. And I think that was very important to the early drafts of the book. But what was equally as important to later drafts and edits was the fact that I did move back. So the spring of 2015, um, I had found, or my agent had found an editor at Algonquin Books who wanted to work with me on Sugar Run. And so I knew that the book was going to be eventually published, but the editor and I had quite a bit of work ahead of us. And, um, at that time period, my partner graduated and we decided to move back to West Virginia. And so that happened right when I was um, diving into the edits of the book. And I wasn't super aware at the time of how important that was to the book. But when I look back at it now, I think that it's crucial. It wouldn't have been the same book at all if those, you know, kind of big, big moves in my life hadn't been occurring at the same time. And part of that is that I think when you grow up really anywhere, but maybe particularly in a rural, very beautiful place, and then you leave, I left when I was 17, you have all of your memories of the place are childhood memories. You know, I had never actually lived there as an adult, and I'd never had to support myself, never had to go and find a job. Uh, and it wasn't until I moved back that I, I realized, oh, Right. I was looking at West Virginia through these sort of rose tinted glasses of of childhood and how beautiful and uh, just really um, kind of easy life had felt there as a child. But that was not true when I moved back uh, in 2015. And I think that was really helpful for me in writing a book where the main character returns to West Virginia was to be I obviously not facing the same challenges as my character who's you know, coming out of prison and um, has felonies and you know all of that but just to to move back as an adult and to look at it through adult eyes and the challenges of of yeah of like making a living there right no I think that you know any kind of rural beautiful setting or I'm thinking of like I spent part of my life in Colorado. I'm always thinking of mm -hmm. uh, ski towns. You know, it's like so great to be up there when you're 20 years old and in college, and it's the weekend, and you're like, I could live here forever. Everything life is so great here. And then, you know, actually making a living in one of these tiny little towns and surviving, uh, it's a different ball game altogether. But it can trick you. You know, I guess part yeah. of part of it is being a kid, and then part of it is just. You know, if you're if you're there on holiday or something, it can seem like such an easy, easy way to go. Yes, exactly. And it becomes a much more, uh, you know, layered or, or textured experience when you're there. You know, we 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 were happy to live to leave Iowa City and, and happy to be there. But then it was sort of like, OK, there was no there was no end date and it wasn't you know, since I was a kid that I had been back in West Virginia with no, no end date. And that was, uh, that was kind of scary. Uh, when I first moved back there, I was like, Oh, all right. I signed myself up for this. All right. Now here we go. Uh, I had kept a tiny bit in touch with a few people that I'd gone to school with, but basically had, you know, no community, no job. 
um, a bunch of land that was really far from everywhere else. And uh, the, that first summer felt awesome. I could, you know, write as much as I wanted and go for long walks and do all that. And then it started, then it became fall. And I was like, oh, right, th- th- I'm still here. And, and uh, I'm still going to be here. And now what do I do? Right, right. So um, when you say you left home at 17, I can't, I'm, I'm, you're in your 20s, right? You're young. Not that young. I'm 35. Oh, you are. Okay. But you're still young. You're younger than I am. Yeah. But um, when you say you left home at 17, where did you go? So I went, I actually moved to North Carolina. Um, when I, I first left my very last uh, year of high school. I went to school in Vermont. Um, and then and then I moved down to, to North Carolina. My My mom, I thank her for this very much now. But at the time, I really didn't didn't like it, but she, uh, didn't like the direction that I was going. I had been like a straight A student who then when I entered high school, I started smoking a lot of pot and just, I just didn't care anymore. And, uh, she got me a scholarship to do, to, to finish off high school at the Putney school in Vermont. What is and, it? One of these boarding schools? Yes. And, uh, and I was like, you know, what the hell is this? And I don't, I don't, I don't want that. I've got my group of friends here and, uh, yeah, maybe I'm not like loving the the education I'm getting, but Hey, like I, I, I'm not interested. Um, but it was, it was a good experience going there. Um, just meeting, you know, it just shook up everything in my world. And I think that, I think it was good. And, and it was the first time that I had people take the fact that I talked about writing seriously um, so I finished up school there. And then by the time I finished up school, uh, in Vermont, my family had moved to temporarily and then longer term to North Carolina. So I went down to Asheville cause that was about an hour from where my folks were living and, um, just was, was waitressing and, and living there and, you know, being, being in my late teens and then early twenties. Did you go to college? I did, but not until quite a bit later. Um, so I felt like even though I'd enjoyed some of the parts of, of, of boarding school, I'd felt kind of bullied into that. And that like, I, I really still was not interested in academia at all and had number one, no idea what I would want to pursue in college. And also just kind of hated the idea of just continuing in more school. So, um, I went back to school when I was like 26, um, at the University of North Carolina in Asheville. But before that, I was like much more interested in just, yeah, you know, going to punk shows and working in bars and like, you know, being as much not in school as possible. Getting tattoos. I see you have a tattoo. Yes. Like what, what are your, I, yeah, what I are have, your tattoos? Oh, let's see. At, at some point I had made this list of, cause I was like, someone else had asked me that and I was like, look, you know, searching all over my, uh, body for like to name them off. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, think that, uh, I made like, you have to actually reference a list to even know which well, ones you have. I mean, kind of, um, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it makes the sort of, you know, it makes a good list. So, so I'll just read the list. Right. So I've got a Fox, an elephant, a bathtub, a Lily, the state of West Virginia, a mouse shooting a pistol, some birds, some lesbians and the Virgin Mary making out with a mermaid. Damn. A Virgin Mary making out with a mermaid. Yes. There's this artist, Alma Lopez, who does this, 
this art that that well, a lot of it with the Virgin Mary uh, and um, there was this painting that I really liked and then I had my friend I was I'm friends with someone who who did tattoos for a long time and most of my tattoos come from that from having free and easy access to someone with a tattoo gun got it and you said you have a tattoo of lesbians I I do have a tattoo of one woman going down on another woman that does exist on my body Um, interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm always so fascinated by people's tattoos. Like the decisions about like what I'm going to put on my body permanently is, uh, it's one that I have a lot. Like I, I've never gotten a tattoo just cause I can never decide. I don't think I have it in me to like make that level of commitment. Right. Yes. I think I haven't gotten a tattoo in a while. And I think that it would be like I, I think that I think all I'm pretty sure that I'm correct that all of my tattoos came before I was 30 and I think that I would think about it a lot more now but I don't I don't regret any of them I actually feel like they're kind of cool little time capsules like you know oh yeah that was definitely 19 year old me um and so when I look at them I'm just carrying around these little time capsules of former selves yeah no that's I think that's got to be the the attitude about it yeah. You know, you just got to be, I think I don't, I don't, maybe I don't have enough self-forgiveness or something. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's true. I mean, I guess it, to, to not, I don't, I don't hate any of my tattoos, even though I would potentially not get any of them again. Um, because I kind of love the me that really wanted that tattoo. Maybe I should get a podcast microphone tattooed on my arm or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The logo for this show will be tattooed. <laughs> um, After you get one, then you kind of stop thinking about it so seriously, and then you just end up with like ten or twenty somehow. Yeah, I, that's the thing. It's like uh, I feel like it gets a little bit addictive, or like once you open those floodgates, it's just uh, you know you, you never yes. just you never just get one. It seems like right. Well, because then you're you're never again in the place where you're like, well, I don't have any tattoos, so it's a big decision. It's not a big decision anymore after you have one. I also feel, and I've said this before, that I feel automatically, creatively and artistically inferior to people who have tattoos. And if I had, if I could ever get the courage to like, especially if I could get sleeves, I think people, yeah. people would look at me and automatically they would be like, he's smarter, he's more creative, he's edgier and cooler. It would help offset the fact that my name is Brad. Like there's a lot that tattoos could do for me. <laughs> that's really, that's interesting. I think maybe because of like, who I hung out with so much in my late teens and early twenties, like tattoos, it's not like they mean nothing, but they almost mean nothing both on my own body and other people's. It's, that's interesting to hear. Like, I think I, I do notice when someone has uh, tattoos, especially in certain circles, you know, now that I teach in a university, it, it stands out a little more. And I think that, you know, I, I notice when people have them. Um, but that's interesting to hear you say that. Uh, because I never thought that that my tattoos could make someone think that I was smarter. Well, in the in the realm of the arts, you know, I don't know right. if I don't know if it's like <laughs> if, if you're if you're like if you're like my uh, my internist or like you know my oncologist or something. I don't know if I want to see tattoo sleeves, but if you're my author, like it's going to help. I think if like I'm just looking at the author photo, I'm like, oh wow, like she knows shit. She's been through some shit. She's made some bad decisions, so <laughs> therefore. <laughs> That's, let's talk about some bad decisions. And, you know, um, just to clarify, too, you said you came out as a queer woman. And then I think earlier you said your partner's name is Matt. Like, yes. so, so you're with a guy 
I'm with a guy. But you... I, uh, yeah, I totally identified as a lesbian, only dated women. Then I fell in love with this dude. Okay. He's not really that much of a dude, but he's a guy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's how uh, my, I think that's how my wife would describe me too. Like not that much of a dude. <laughs> that's a, uh, in my book, that's a, that's high praise. That's a real good description. I mean, uh, one, one hopes, I think we have enough bros, like, I, yes. you know, and I just, uh, you know, we need to, we need to, we need a little bit more balance between the masculine and the feminine in this world, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So, and then I've, I've been with Matt for 13 years, but I still identify as a queer woman because I feel like, uh, like, you know, through, through, through the logic of the universe, I ended up like the person who I think I'm meant to spend my life with, um, is, is Matt, but that, yeah, that doesn't, uh, change who I am just changes who I'm with but right so I want to ask you because I guess this is sort of like a layered question like it's it, it's about like the ways in which I feel like at least in the term in terms of popular uh, perception we often hear about West Virginia in terms of like rural blight and the opioid crisis and um, income inequality and like poverty uh, the, you know there's a lot of that i feel like that's a lot of what i hear about when i hear about west virginia or i'm reading about it in the news online or whatever it's those kinds of stories that often rise up you know in the algorithm or whatever um and then also you you mentioned earlier coming out you know as a as a queer woman in a place like alderson or rural west virginia like that's like, like, I want to hear a little bit more. <laughs> um, and then I guess that's also related to this idea of you being an unhappy or a somewhat unhappy teen who's smoking a lot of weed. I, I have to imagine that had to be tied to your sense of identity and your sense of place. Like all those things, they feel related. I know it's a lot to, to try to unpack, but do you see what I'm getting at? I think so. Uh, yeah. And yeah, and I think that um, I think you're right that that uh, all of those uh, parts of myself are uh, interwoven in certain ways. And definitely, when I was a teenager, it was um, a combination of of growing up in well, not even in a small town, but outside of a small town. You know, in a, in a really rural place where um, yeah, I had some friends in school, but really what I loved was to get done with school, get off the school bus and just go and run around in the woods and hang out and um, had this super strong connection to that land there on top of Muddy Creek Mountain outside of Alderson, West Virginia. And, um, and then as I got a little older I at first didn't really even have the language for my identity at all. I mean, like I, the only time that I'd heard anybody um, use the word lesbian was that you know, there were like kids on the bus who rumored that there was this uh, doctor in town who she wasn't married and people, you know, said she was a lesbian and people, uh, uh, you know, one kid would say, yeah, that's why my dad won't let us go to that doctor's because, you know, she's a carpet muncher, something like this. Um, and I heard that and was like, oh, OK, so there there are people and there are people 
you know, I, I don't have any confirmation for that. But in my in my mind, I was like, oh, I was, you know, more interested than when I saw that doctor at the grocery store or whatever. I just wanted to like study her because I was like, oh, all right. So this is um, something that that possibly could exist in this in this place. Um, but it was this sort of time for me, the more that I started to become aware of my identity, the more not disconnected from the land, but the more that I began to realize that that being there on that land wasn't going to ever completely fulfill me, that, that, that like, I wasn't going to ever be completely happy there. And uh, I didn't come out until after I left West Virginia, I think, because I didn't have any models for that. And also because it did feel it, it didn't feel scary to me like anybody was going to like physically harm me, but it felt scary like I might lose my friend group, you know, or at the very least, the you know, close relationships that I had with female friends would become strained. And so I just kind of kept that to myself. But as I got a little older, it became, you know, a bigger and bigger thing to keep to myself. And um, so then my at one point kind of like very straightforward relationship to the place I just loved West Virginia and didn't really think about you know wanting to be anywhere else became more complicated and that was directly related to my desires and my identity yeah I mean it's like I have to imagine and correct me if I'm wrong but if you're a young woman and you're coming to terms with your identity and you have this friend group from whom this identity is held secret. They're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking to yourself like, wow, if they knew the truth about me, this could strain our relationship. That's got to build some resentment. You've got to be thinking like, they don't even really know who I am. And if they did, they wouldn't necessarily like me or like me in the same way. And so do you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like yes. it's like if people knew the truth. So I think it might give you this idea that people are full of shit. Like, that's the way I'm thinking. Like, <laughs> yeah, know. yes, I think so. And I, yes, I think I think that and also like, I think I, I, I was like, really afraid of losing so much like losing my community, you know, but, but, but also, yeah, I was a teenage girl. And before, you know, when I, whenever I didn't say anything about my identity, then, you know, as teenage girls do sometimes, you know, my friends would like, we could take showers together and stuff. And that was like, not going to happen anymore at all. Right. Uh, if I came out, uh, and so I was kind of like, well, like, 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 I remember feeling very, uh, very aware that it was a decision and like the, the payoffs, like what I would get out of coming out was to me at that point felt like not at all worth it because I also didn't even feel like there was any, there were any options of people who would be women who would be interested in dating me. So I was kind of like, you know, what, what am I going to get from this? Right. There's only downside. Right. So, uh, what about family? Like, and, and. I guess, like, what about family? Like, your parents were hippies. I'm imagining they were maybe pretty cool about it. Or correct me. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think I definitely had an easier time than than other people. Um, my, yeah, when I came out, I came out to my parents. Um, I guess I was probably eighteen, uh, eighteen or 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 had just turned nineteen, um, and had, you know, what, what was didn't want to like 
call my girlfriend my best friend anymore. I was, I, I did have a girlfriend by that point and was kind of um, like, all right, yeah, my parents, they, they should be, I thought they would be completely fine with it. And they weren't that bad, but my mom immediately started crying and was like, oh, life's going to be so hard for you. And I was, you know, an angsty teenager and that made me really mad. Um, and then she also would, you know, say these things, which in the scope of things is really not that big of a deal, but she'd say things like, you know, I like was, you know, dating a woman who was fairly butch and she'd say, I thought you liked women. Like, I thought you, I thought you were attracted to women. Like basically, you know, why would you want to be with a woman who looks kind of like a guy? Um, so uh, my mom and I, we had, we had our, our, our kind of ups and downs with, with that, but it, it leveled out after a while. It's hard, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard it's, as a like parent, I can, I can relate to some degree to like worry about what your child might face. And then I just think there are just some gaps in knowledge generationally or whatever could happen. Yes. I remember having similar conversations with my mom, like hypothetical conversations, like in high school, like you would be okay if I like married a black woman and my mom would be like, yes, but I would worry about how hard it would be for, you know, like there, I, I can right. remember yeah. those kinds of sentiments being expressed. And, you know, I, I think like, um, I don't know, like it's, I understand why you would be frustrated as an angsty teen. And I think I can also understand some of the sentiment from the mom. Like, I think there's some middle ground maybe to find. Yeah, I think so. I mean, now I feel like, Oh, you know, that, it's not nice when you finally like get up the nerve to like come out to your family to be met by like tears. I also think I felt like, <laughs> um, she, then suddenly my dad just was needing to comfort her. Like she sort of like stole, stole my thunder too. You know, then she was just like, like in my memory and this may be an exaggeration, but she was like bent. We were going on a walk together, the three of them. And, she, and then she was bent over like, crying, you know? And I was kind of like, wait a minute. Like, <laughs> Yeah, now like, this is all about you and how like this is. It was like she was crying because she was worried about me, but it also definitely seemed like it hurt her. Yeah, um, and uh, like I think uh, I'm thinking of like myself as a parent, but I think like you have to be careful as a parent, and it's very easy to do. So it's this is no judgment on anybody, um, in particular your mom, but like I think a lot of times parents can invest. A, a part of their, or can feel a real sense of identity in their children. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yes. You have like this, like imagination of your future and your child can become maybe to an, un, uh, an unhealthy degree, some extension of who you think you are. And when suddenly that gets altered or shifted in a way that feels dramatic, you might respond like feeling like you've been wounded or something. I, yeah, I actually think that's really well said. And it, it, makes me think about some conversations I've been having uh, this summer with a a 15-year-old girl I know in West Virginia who came out to her family and um, her dad was super supportive and her mom seems to be working through some of it but was not at all in the beginning. And we were actually talking about that and and my opinion was something not quite as eloquent as you just said it, but something like that of like maybe it's not especially for mothers and daughters, or maybe it is, but that you, yeah, you've invested yourself. I, I'm not a parent, never ever plan on being a parent, but I can kind of imagine like, how could you not invest a sense of identity in your kid? And then 
if they come out and you have never, you know, ever had any part of you that, that related to that, then they've just wedged in this big um, division, right, between parent and child. That's right. That's right. And I think gender, I think the, the, the gender matters. Like mm-hmm. I notice a difference. Like I love both of my children equally or whatever. Like there's no distinction at all. Um, but, uh, you know, my son is a boy and I grew up yeah. as a, you know, and my, my wife and daughter, I noticed that same kind of thing, like mothers and their daughters, like the, there's a different like connectivity just because you share that gender and like you're, compa- you can't help but compare experiences. And, I think as a father, uh, my son is disabled. And I remember when he was diagnosed, you know, there was a big shift. Like it was in in some ways a kind of a similar dynamic, different but same, you know, where yeah. all of a sudden everything was upended and all of these like imaginations that you have of what, oh, so he's a boy like me and he's going to do this and he's going to do that. And it was like, no, yeah. he's not. And it was like, it was really difficult. It was like, oh, okay. Not only because, you know, it's just uh, heartbreaking as a parent, uh, but also because that shared experience that you thought you had is just going to look different, you know? Yeah, it deviates at that point and you, yeah, you have to, yeah. So you have to navigate it. But has it changed? Like, you know, obviously the way that uh, queer people exist in America, at least to some extent, has improved. Um, you know, yes. I, I know that there are still a lot of challenges, but there have been some extraordinary gains made in our lifetimes, um, in terms of tolerance and rights and, um, all that kind of stuff in a place like rural West Virginia, or even in Durham, North Carolina, like, you know, or outside of Asheville or whatever it is like, do you, right. have you been able to see detectable changes manifest and progress be made in places like that? Yeah, I have actually. And I, I feel really like heartened by it. I actually, um, I I wrote, a it's like the only piece of like nonfiction, like in like journalism that I, that I've ever done. Um, I, I wrote this piece where I, the idea for it started with that question. Basically when I moved back to West Virginia, I kind of wanted to start exploring like, um, all right. So the last time that I lived there full time, I was, you know, a closeted teen who didn't feel like there were any benefits to coming out and didn't have any support system in my community or in my school. And uh, then when I moved back, like, is that still if I were 15, 16, 17 in West Virginia now, would that still be the same was sort of my my question. And it led to me interviewing a bunch of different folks, but I, I narrowed in on this um, one young trans man who was living in Alderson and transitioning um, pretty openly and um, was from a very well-known local family. Like everybody knew his family um, and was working at a local bar. And so I just kind of started talking with him about what his experience um, when he was in school when he, um, had been going to the same high school that I went to, he, I, um, identified as female at that point and identified as a lesbian. And then after high school had started transitioning, but that gave me an idea of really, in my opinion, how much things have changed, um, there. I mean, not as much as other places. I think that's always true for West Virginia as we're always a little bit behind, but I was, 
pleasantly surprised to learn that there's now a gay-straight alliance club at my former high school, um, and that in the opinion of this one person who I was interviewing, he, he said he felt like it like it really it hadn't been as bad for him as friends he had, you know, even just like five years before, um, that he had taken a girl to prom and that hadn't been a problem. And so I think things are changing and that's pretty exciting to, to be able to, to feel like that's, that's actually true. Cool. That's good to hear. Yeah. Like for some reason, as you were talking about all this, I was thinking of Matthew Shepard. Yes. Do you remember that story up in Laramie, Wyoming? I was living in Colorado oh, yeah. when that happened and, uh, just down the road. I mean, it's like, you know, a couple hour drive. And I just remember that story and that set of circumstances and just the level of danger that a person, whether they're gay or trans or whatever, has to kind of live with on a day-to-day. And it sounds like maybe that's diminishing a bit, which is good, just to be able to walk around yeah. walk around as yourself in rural West Virginia and not be living, hopefully, with, like, mortal fear that some sort of, like, bigoted hillbilly is going to come out of nowhere and, you know. Right. I, I mean, I think that, that I think, um, like, the internet and social media is, has helped a lot. And, um, I mean, this, this, um, girl that I was, I was mentioning who's 15, who's come out that I've been talking to this summer, you know, she said she, it wasn't until this summer that she was ready to come out, but she had come out like to her family or to a bigger group of people, but she'd come out to, to two friends. She had, you know, two friends who identified as gay, uh, and to me, that like blows my mind, like to think, I, I don't know, I just, I didn't have that. And I, I, it wasn't, I graduated high school in 2003. So it's not ages and ages ago. Um, so that's, seems to me like a pretty rapid change. It's not to say that like kids in high school aren't going to be like stupid bullies about it or that there aren't that you know that there aren't going to be remarks or places where you don't feel comfortable going but I think the places you don't feel comfortable going you know might be like like biker bars or you know places that it's kind of like well maybe <laughs> anywhere in, in the U.S. that you might think twice about like walking in there holding another woman's hand um but like you can go, you know, it's like, I think you can like go to the grocery store, go to, you know, and you're not going to be, um, stared at or, or, or treated, um, that badly. And so that seems to me like a pretty, pretty rapid change. So I want to shift gears and I want to ask you, uh, briefly again about this trip up to boarding school. Like you mentioned that you were kind of a pothead and like a, a mopey teen or whatever. Did it, there wasn't any kind of like uh, any of the, like kind of more, um, sensational West Virginia drug experiences happening. Like you weren't cooking math out in the cabin or anything. <laughs> I was not. Okay. I was not cooking math out in the cabin. I was really just like drinking beer and smoking a lot of pot in the cabin. I mean, I did, you know, do things like sneak friends in through. The, uh, my parents' land is surrounded by pastures. And so uh, the cabin that was my bedroom uh it was far enough from the house that especially in the summer with all the leaves on the trees, you could, you kind of couldn't really see it. And so I would, I would have friends like park down the road and walk around through the field. And like one time we had, you know, partied a little too hard or whatever. I always made them leave before, like they couldn't sleep there. Cause I was always afraid that my parents would come out in the morning 
and like check on me. Um, and I, I was like, okay, you have to go back and sleep in your cars. And these two guys apparently passed out in the middle of the field. And my mom, I came back to the house for breakfast and she was like, had gone, gone to like check on the horse, do something. And she was like, there's two teenage boys sleeping in the field. You don't know anything about that. Do you Misha? And I just kept like eating my like Rice Krispies or whatever and was like, nope. And <laughs> my mom is not super confrontational. So I think it was pretty obvious, but she just like left it at that. Well, yeah, I've tried, I, I can recall, I mean, we didn't live near a field or anything, but I remember having like similar exchanges with my mom. Like, you know, right. sometimes parent, obvious. well, sometimes I feel like they just, they're just like, okay, I don't want to touch that. Like my daughter just this morning, she's 10 years old. She comes downstairs and tells me about this dream that she had. And it's like, I'm not even going to repeat it. Cause it's so gross. It's so gross <laughs> oh, you know? no. and like uncomfortable, but it was a dream. And she was like trying to tell me about it. And you have so many experiences as a parent where you're just like, okay, honey, well, let's get on with your day. Like, I'm not even going to deal with this. Like, this is just too much. <laughs> if I, if I like, touch that, then we have to like, spend double, a, yeah, we're going to spend an hour and both of us are just going to feel uncomfortable. Like sometimes it's just better to leave it alone, but, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I can relate. So then you know, math, but you know, yeah, yeah. Okay. But okay. So no meth, just pot and beer, like normal teenage stuff in West yes. Virginia, but then you go off to Vermont to boarding school and like, you know, my understanding of boarding school is that like, if you're trying to get your kid off drugs, don't send them to boarding school. <laughs> right. Well, maybe particularly don't send them to this boarding school. My mom had read about the Putney school in some magazine and that like, I mean, so it, that part of the Putney school is that they actually have a working farm there. And my mom knew that, especially when I'd been younger, that like, I really loved the animals we had and, um, and like living on a farm. So I think partially her idea was like, well, like, let's just get her like reconnected with that maybe and get her like some teachers who will push her harder. You know, my high school was like, they, they really stopped caring about us. I, kind of, I hope that maybe that has changed too, although I feel like that it might not be true, but um, like we when we were in elementary school, we had small local elementary schools where you knew your teachers, they knew your family, everybody knew everybody. And if you started to fall behind, like they really paid attention and would like talk to you and talk to your family about it. And then the local high school shut down. I don't know how many years, but probably less than 10 years before it would have been my turn to go there. And they started busing everybody to these big consolidated um, middle and high schools and we're really like literally felt like we were numbers in you know nobody if you had been an a student and you started to become a cd student nobody like checked in and we're like hey what's going on is there something going on at home or is there something going on you know n nobody did that um so i just i you know had a band teacher who let us go out and smoke pot during our band practice time and that was my favorite class and that became the way it was so I think my mom wanted to try to yes get me kind of off drugs but also just kind of like reorient me towards the person that maybe I had been before but the Putney school is uh like not yeah I mean we we were we had access to like pretty much every, you know everything from like 
sex uh, to alcohol to like we were not super supervised oh really did you get into fish you were in vermont like were you a hippie was that uh no but lots of people there um did yeah but i was more like got really into the smiths oh yeah so kind of like what is that i don't even know what the smiths that's not goth is it uh you know i was like so i i like really loved like this was my whole thing at that point i i don't know yeah i don't know what you would you know bell and sebastian also and i really loved i thought i would become a photographer i really loved the dark room so i just used um my photography class as an excuse to take naked pictures of girls and then go hang out in the dark room and listen to bell and sebastian and the smiths <laughs> so many feelings bell sebastian yes. the oh, smiths yes. the dark room i mean it's all just it's like the perfect storm Oh yeah, I I will you know maximum maximum emotions at that point. <laughs> so okay, so you then you spend your twenties sort of being a free young person, which I think is actually, you know, there's part of me that thinks it's the way it should be. It's like I I always mm-hmm. I've many times on this show lobbied for the idea of a gap year as being like a healthy, you know, thing for young people to do in between high school and college, just to take a break from like the the rigors and like the rote nature of classes and tests and all that kind of stuff. Um, it makes sense to me to take a little bit of a break and to experience the world and like, go get a job and, you know, live your life a little bit. But, uh, you had like gap years. It sounds like you had like five or six. So am I, am I like, am I correct in assuming that like those years were spent like waitressing, bartending, um, and yes. kind of being I, wild or, you know, having fun. Yeah. At, and then by the time you got to your mid twenties, you were like, okay, it's time to go get educated. Yes, exactly. So I, um, that's, a, that's a pretty good summation. I, um, the, right before I went back to college, actually I was still doing this when I did start going to college. Um, I started working at a strip club because my grand idea was that it would give me lots of time to write that I could, make a lot of money working at night, just a few nights a week. And then I would have, you know, tons of time to write short stories. Didn't totally work out because the schedule, I, you know, I got on the schedule of, of like not going to sleep until like 4am on the nights that I was working and it was hard to get off of that schedule. So I just kind of like slept a lot and, um, did have a lot of money, but also like it was the first time in my life I'd ever had that kind of, uh, cash flow, And so, um, I, I was not as disciplined as I had imagined that I would be when I started that job. Um, wait, were you dancing? I was. Okay. So you dance and like, you're making, you, you make good money doing that. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I made a couple hundred dollars a night, which was huge for me. I mean, like, I, I think I was like host, you know, I was hostessing at Chili's and then I was like waitressing at some other place. And then, then started um, dancing at the treasure chest. And uh, that way, yeah, I was like, I don't even know what to, you know, my like sock drawer full of dollar bills. Um, so I would just, you know, take my friends out to the bar and like, you know, that kind of stuff that's like fun to do when you're young and you like have a little bit of money for the first time. Can I ask you a question about dancing? Yes. That, the first time. Like when you're like, I'm going to do this, there's got to be a first dance, <laughs> you know, where you're like, yes. you're kind of a rookie up there. Like I get if you're like an old pro and like, you know how to sort of do, 
what you do. Uh, but yes, uh, I was. It was very awkward. I mean, it, it became sort of less awkward, like anything, I guess, that you do. You know, the the more times you do it. But I definitely, I did have nerves. It was also just very awkward. And I, I remember actually the first, my first like official night. I'd gone to the club for a little while, like before the club opened um, in a, a few weeks beforehand to get kind of get the hang of it, you know, like to see what the pole felt like and like, <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. But this was going to be my first night like there when the club is open. And I actually was volunteering. This was in Asheville. I was volunteering at a uh, rape crisis center and they were doing the training and just so happened that like my training you know it was a week-long training and one of my training nights I had to go directly from this volunteer training uh at the rape crisis center to the club and so kind of you know transitioning from the self who's the the volunteer at the rape crisis center to um uh, I danced under the name Miranda and um ah and Miranda is a character name in your book too this is true I'm fond of this name yes um and that, and my big memory of the first you know the first little while at the club was just that it was really awkward, and like the stage is like it's pretty hard to not have it be gross and dirty because there are so many you know like people dancing on it whatever's on the bottom of your shoes and it's there on the stage and they clean it off but how often can they clean it off, and it and it's also just really like physically kind of uncomfortable because like you don't have any clothes on and then you're kind of like crawling around on this really hard surface that is the stage. So my memories are that it was way more awkward in like small ways, like not this huge, like terror. I didn't feel like this enormous, like jaw dropping, like, Oh my gosh, what am I doing? Terror, but more like small annoyances and a lot of awkwardness. Okay. And like, what about the guys? Like the guys are, like I can't like I I'm a guy and I can't stand mm-hmm. strip clubs. Like I've been right. to many like a bachelor parties or my youth, you know, you get dragged right. into these places and I mean on one level it's like oh, you know, great, but then it's just I'm all, you know, it just gets weird, uh, you know, like the interactions and if you don't have I guess if you have a lot of money and you're willing to spend a ton of money then it makes it easier. But I was always like trying to I was always trying to have like conversations with the girls. <laughs> they were just like they're just like shut up dude and give me a 20, you know, like Right. So yeah, I mean for the most part that also is just like pretty awkward like the music is really loud, you know? So you can't like it's not a space that's really built for um for like conversation. But you are not alone in your uh <laughs> you know desire to to make it into a conversation what's the category Um, what's the category of guy like did you guys have like a name or is there like a a way of like you know euphemistically referring to the the conversational guys or the or the guy who like was like drunk and being like you should go back to school like (laughs) right yes well yeah i mean we did we did you know there were there were talkers who but there were also multiple categories of talkers because there there would be talkers who if you just talk to them for a little while, then they'll buy a dance, right? Uh, so that's fine. Sort of like worth, you invest a little bit of time. You pretend like you are listening to or care about what they're saying. And then, <laughs> all right, you know, uh, others who, and that's what you kind of have to figure out like fairly quickly is, is, is this somebody who, who's like, we're just going to talk. And then that's, that's that, <laughs> right? 
Um, I, I was basically like doing this podcast, but like with like, you know what I'm saying? Right. I just oh, wanted to like yeah. find out who they were and they were just like, dude, get away from Maybe me. Maybe you should have a spinoff um, <laughs> podcast. Uh, where I wear, where I like wear a wire, you know, like I'm wearing like a hidden yes. microphone and I'm like, Brad goes to strip clubs and tries to interview strippers without them knowing it. But right. uh, um, I feel like you must have, especially coming from a rural upbringing where you, you weren't necessarily living around a lot of people and you weren't exposed to a ton. It sounds like you, you know, made up for lost time at least in these years and really got a window into the human soul. Uh, right. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. And I, I, I think you're, you're right in that, um, aspect that once I left, like, I, I kind of never thought I wanted to leave West Virginia and then like felt sort of a little like pushed out. And also maybe, you know, my identity was something that was, I couldn't be fully explored there and whatever. Um, but once I did leave, then I was like really hungry for, experiences um and for just just like trying stuff out and seeing um what what worked for me exploring freedom i totally relate to that i think i mean i think that's a natural thing to be doing when you're 18 to 25 but i think in particular coming from like i came from indiana felt more yeah felt more cloistered than other some other places and i think too being uh you know, a, a young woman who's coming to terms with her sexual identity and stuff like that. Like, I totally get how you would want to go out and sort of see what was what, you know, that seems natural to me. Yes. And yeah. And I, I think I kind of, you know, yeah, I did a sort of like full, full turn from, uh, from how I had felt like, I mean, I wasn't happy being like a stoned closeted teen in West Virginia, but I'd sort of convinced myself that I kind of like was, that everything was like fine, you know? And then when I moved past that, then, um, I wanted to try stuff out. And I also think like I wanted my identity both as a, as a queer woman and as a sex worker, like in everybody's space, like I was like this, like I'm finding things out about myself and, um, and I'm not going to let you ignore it, which yeah, led to some things like my mom not speaking to me for like five months. But did your parents know you were dancing? Yes, I I feel now like this is something that I could have absolutely did not need to share with them. But I was like pretty like I was I, I really felt like I needed to educate the world about the fact that like being a sex worker was nothing to be ashamed of. And that that started with my family, and that was uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think my mom um, did and does consider herself a feminist, but of a very different sort. Right. Than, yeah. Well, I'm trying to imagine my daughter coming home and telling me that she's dancing. I mean, you know, I mean, you're making good money. As long as you're not in danger, <laughs> right? I'm trying to imagine my most tolerant and like unpanicky response. Uh, you know, it's easy to easy to say, but maybe when it's actually in your face, it's probably harder to execute. I, I think that would be. I think that would be really hard conversation to have with your kid. Yeah, especially. But I can also relate to being the kid who's like, I'm not hiding who I am. I'm gonna because I right. I was totally that way. Like I, yes. my mom would be like, I don't want you 
to be experimenting with drugs. And I'd be like, well, I ate mushrooms. So it wasn't that bad. And she'd be like, don't tell me this. You know, like, <laughs> right. You're I, like, no, I need, I need you to know this. It's yeah. just like almost as important as doing it as having you like know that I'm doing it. Well, and also like, I'm just as a matter of personal integrity, like I'm not going to hide things. Like I think, right. I think I'm still that way. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't like living with all these repressions and like, you know, whatever, like we're all going to die. Yeah. Let's talk. Um, right. So I want to ask you about, I guess the, you know, it sounds like you were always writing. Like you, you, even when you were getting this job as a dancer, you know, at least the idea was that you would have time to, to write your short stories or whatever in, in, in your like lazy days or whatever. But, um, so it seems like this was something that you carried with you from your time at Putney school in Vermont through this gap period from like 18 to 25. And then can you talk about the transition to like, I'm going to go back to school and getting more seriously into writing and then, you know, eventually uh, producing your novel. Like, can you talk about that? Yeah. So I, uh, that, that part of my, my life and my writing kind of started with um, me deciding that I wanted to audit a creative writing class um, at the university of North Carolina at Asheville. Um, And I, became interested in that because um, I started hanging out with my now partner, Matt, who was the first like good friend I had who was also a writer um, and who took writing really seriously. And he had, you know, like things that, that at, the, at that point I was 21 and at that point um, kind of blew my mind. Like he had these like set hours when he would write and uh, he had some craft books and things that I just had never really thought about. And through that, I think I started to see how limited my own, like that, that I was just writing stuff and then I was never really doing anything with it. Like I was never revising it or maybe I showed it to a few friends, but I kind of wasn't really progressing past the point of just having an idea and, sometimes finding the time to like sloppily write it down and so I still liked this idea of um, writing being an important part of my life but I hadn't really put that into practice very much and um, he'd mentioned that he'd taken a creative writing class um, when he was living in California and of course I knew creative writing classes existed it just never had like occurred to me as like oh that could be like a, a step to take um, so I found this class, uh, at UNC Asheville and, um, still was very like, I'm not, I don't want to go to college. So I decided to just audit it. And, uh, it was with a novelist named Catherine Min and she really kind of like single-handedly t- turned things around for me or like changed things. She, uh, pulled me aside at the end of that class and she was like, like, what's up? with you what are you you know what are you doing with your life and I was like oh you know I'm I'm good I I like make a lot of money at the strip club and I try to write stories sometimes and this class was fun to audit and she was like wait you're not you're like you're not gonna continue in school and you're not you know gonna take this more seriously wait she she, she sounds like me at the strip club right yes she, 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 she did. We were, you know, we had this one, one-on-one in her office and, and she was, um, yes, like the, like the kind of, um, 
that that I don't know, like I want to say mentor, but it's something else Motherly. like this kind of like yeah, but but it was it worked well for me because it wasn't like she never said oh, I'm worried it's not safe for you at the strip club or you're ruining your life, you know, at the strip club. She didn't say anything like that. She just said, you've got some talent, but you're going to need a whole lot more than that. And that it sort of never occurred to me that you kind of needed to like do more than just have ideas. Um, and so she was like, you need to take, you need to take more classes. And she was like, honestly, you need to, you need to get your degree. Like you can, you can keep working at the club if that's what you want to do. But like, really you, if you want to progress as a writer, then you also need to take like other classes unrelated to writing. You need to like be in college. Uh, and I tr trusted her enough by that point at the end of that class that I kind of blew that idea off for another year, I guess, but it stayed there in my mind. And, um, I, I like I couldn't convince myself that she was full of shit. So I went back to school. It is a common refrain on this show. It's happened in my life too, but teachers recognizing something in you makes a huge difference. It's amazing to me how common it is for somebody to have a talent that they don't necessarily quite understand or even have awareness of. And then they have a teacher in their life who's like, you're good at this. And they go, oh, oh, I am. Right. You know, like, Thank you for telling me what I'm good at. I needed somebody to tell me that I'm good so that I could, you know, and it could be like I had a teacher when I was in seventh grade and I remember it. And she was like, you're a really good writer. And I was like, I am. And there you go. The rest of your life, your rest of your life yeah. is colored by this in some way, you know, and over and over again, you know, I hear that same kind of story told in different iterations. I think, yeah, it, it does. It makes a big difference. And I really liked, like, I think that part of what stuck with me is that she also didn't just say you have talent. She said, like, you have some talent, but it's going to take a lot more than that. And I somehow, like, with my, that, I really respected that statement. Like, I, don't, I think even if she had said to me, you're really talented, I would have been like, oh, cool, nice, thanks. And then maybe just like continued on in the way that I, you know, and then like, oh, she said I have talent. So that means I don't have to like, I don't know what, like work hard or do anything more. Um, but she didn't say that. She said like, yeah, you have some talent. That's going to take a lot more she than that. She kind of was like laying down a challenge kind of like, like a very subtle, mm -hmm. like deftly articulated challenge. Yes. And she treated it kind of like this way of like, you, you must know, like you have some, you know, like she was kind of like, and I, I really liked that. I took a couple other classes with her, but her attitude, which was like, okay, yeah, talent is important. But if like, if we treat that as like the only, or maybe even the ultimate ingredient in like the making of a writer, then we're not being honest because yeah, you can't do it without having some talent, but you also have to like work really hard and you have to want it really, really badly. So how did you wind up? I mean, you, you wrote Sugar Run in the Iowa City Public Library. How did you get an agent? And it sounds like the agents, did the agents sell the book in midstream? Yeah. Was the book done? The book was done. It we My editor and I worked on it a lot after that, but it was it was done. Um, I mean, it, it, um, 
it didn't the shape of the book the story didn't change after that um yeah so i um was i went you know after um Catherine min convinced me to to get my undergrad degree i went to unc Asheville and um graduated from there in 2012 and um my partner, Matt, was also in school there at the same time, and we both graduated at the same time, both decided that we wanted to go get MFAs um, and applied to, I think I applied to like 15 programs and didn't get into a single MFA program. He got into the MFA program at Iowa. So we we'd kind of had this agreement where it was like if you either one of us gets into, like if we both got into dream our dream schools, then we would you know, do a long distance relationship for a little while. Um, or if one of us got into our dream school, we would move there. So I hadn't gotten into any programs at all. So I just moved out there and um, started waitressing and writing and went through, yeah, you know, a period of like kind of disillusionment. Like I, I, I felt confused as to why this next step that I had felt like I was kind of set up for, you know, I was ready to actually, for once in my life, I wanted to continue being in school and then it hadn't worked out. So I felt kind of confused by that, but I felt like also the only way, like I just needed to like keep writing. Um, so I had begun like a very early draft of a couple chapters of Sugar Run before we moved out there. And then I just kept working on it. And then um, after living in Iowa for a couple of years, I ended up getting, doing a low residency MFA from um, Queens University in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that was actually a pretty great setup for me because it was all long distance. You went to campus for like less than 10 days and then um, were matched with a writer and then corresponded with them for the rest of the semester. Uh, and I worked while I was there with Lauren Groff. Oh, that'd be perfect. And yeah. It was amazing. It was it was it was awesome, and she was super supportive of me, and particularly of Sugar Run. Um, and she's just a super wonderful, generous. You've you've had her on this show before, right? Yeah, years ago I talked to her. Yeah, she's just really really good person, and I mean, obviously an amazing talented writer. But like as a teacher, she was an incredible teacher, and just like so good. She kept working with me on sugar run after the semester that, you know, she was being paid to work with me, but like long beyond and after that. And so when the, when I completed what I felt like was a decent draft of the book, um, she shared it with her agent who is Bill Clegg and he got excited about it and wanted to work with me. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And, that, and now here you are. And Algonquin's a great press. Yes. And I'm feels like feels like happy. the right feels like the right press for this material too, or like one of the better presses you could wind up at. I agree completely. I mean, I think I love Algonquin, um, the books they put out, but also they're they you know they've got a pretty cool history that they started I think in 1984 out of somebody's like uh, woodshed um, down here in in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and um, just like a pretty cool track record of. Uh, Larry Brown is one of my favorite writers and, you know, they, they were the first to put him out and they do good by Southern writers and kind of weird writers that don't really fit anywhere else. And they've made like a 
I think a pretty amazing press out of that kind of work. Absolutely. Yeah. I hear good things. I mean, writers who are published there tend to be happy. That's what I, that's the vibe yes. I gen, yeah. gen, they generally get. Incredible. Um, everything from that, from editing all the way on up there. It's like super supportive. And I, I think that, yeah, they got the material in a way that, uh, you know, a New York best based press, like m maybe wouldn't get it in the same way. Well, are you working on another book? I am. I'm working on a couple of things. I've, I've, the, my next book is going to come out with Algonquin, the same editor there. Um, Who's the editor? Kathy Pories. Okay. Um, probably in either late 2021 or very early 2022. Um, so we're working working on some edits um, on that. And then I, I've been working this past summer on a, my third novel. So just in an early stage of that. And the second book is a novel as well. It is, yep. Does it have a title? It does. It's called Perpetual West. Okay. Any hints about what it's about, or are we going to have to be surprised? Or uh, No, I can talk about it a little. Um, it's about, actually, it's about kind of a lot of the things we've been talking about today, because it's about, like, that period of time when you're in your late teens, early 20s, and like really hungry for the world and trying to figure out your identity. Um, so it follows this, this three characters, um, two, two main characters who, uh, a man and a woman who got married uh, very young, like really, really early in their college careers. Um, and then now are, have moved across the country from Virginia to Texas, um, for graduate school and are kind of figuring out that they're actually their their identities and their lives are way more complex than maybe what they originally thought early on so it's about yeah queer identity and uh and finding yourself it's also about professional wrestling oh there's the there's the twist yeah <laughs> wwe yes i didn't, well, yeah. I did, so, I didn't see that coming it's yeah it's it's like a um i don't know it's a, I, I like jokingly like to think of it as like an anti-campus novel because everybody drops out of school and um and starts like doing other things other than the trajectory that they were set up to to try to go on all right well congratulations uh, on all of your success it's been great talking with you uh, stay safe in, in you. Durham. You're in Durham, right? That's yes. what you said? Okay. Well, stay safe. And um, I wish you all the best on, I guess, the third novel, which is the yeah. one that seems like it's most fluid right now. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, folks. There you have it. That is Misha Marin. Her debut novel is called Sugar Run, and it is available right now from Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. You can find Misha on the internet at MishaMarin.com. You can follow her on Twitter at MishaMarin. The book, once again, is called Sugar Run. Go get your copy immediately. Buy it up. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes, more than 660 episodes, all of them, all of them are available for free. It's a listener-supported show. Support the show if you like the show, and you can you can do that. Just go to patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash otherpplpod, throw a couple of bucks in the hat. 
If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. If you have something to say, if you have thoughts, if you have a story you want to share, if you want to send me a photo of where you listen. You can also remember, uh, send photos of where you listen via social media. Just DM my uh, social media director on Twitter or on Instagram. The Other People podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It, too, is free. It's a free app. Go get the app. It's available where apps are available. Coming up on Sunday, it's another coin flip. It's either going to be Emerson Whitney or Nick Flynn. I'm still, you know, I'm juggling, figuring things out. How do you guys feel about Kamala Harris as the vice presidential pick of uh, Joe Biden? I got to say, I got a little emotional when the news came through. Like, whatever your politics, I find it exciting that a woman of color is on on the ticket for the first time in our history. It's about time. Now we just got to get the the authoritarian, rapey, racist guy out of uh, the Oval Office. Can we do that? Can we just get back to some sanity? Like some semblance of like, please? Anyway, it's a good moment. I feel energized. No more sociopaths.